now we're diving into Genesis. I give my blurb for next year. We need to finish out the first book of the Bible, looking at 46 through 50, and I call it On to Egypt. And I want to take us back because what we're seeing in 46 through 50 obviously is a close to what we looked at 12 through 50. And that's basically four men's lives. And that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Though we don't want to miss how Judah, and and I want to mention this, Judah is rising to the occasion. Last week we got to see Judah pretty awful, pretty unusable guy, if you want to call it that. But we're going to see him rising. We're going to see Jacob give a prophecy. That's the line of Christ. Judah is the lineage. And we're going to see, kind of as a side note, his rising up a little bit, taking leadership, and then his father basically giving him leadership in that way. But I want to go all the way back to Abraham. Actually, it's when he was still Abram. And God foretold something to Abram. He says, your descendants are going to be strangers in a land and end up serving a nation for 400 years. Um, They're going to return, it said, from this land with great substance. Exodus is them leaving that land, which you guys know is Egypt. And we're going to see them coming out with the wealth of Egypt. They're going to sack basically Egypt as they leave. God orchestrated that. But I wanted to go back to Genesis 15, 13 through 14. And I just want to read it because what you're watching here, and I'll point to the screen like there's something on it, but there's not. I could have done weather. I could do this, you know. There's a cloud coming here and rain in the distance. And I could guess just like they guess, you know. So there's your career if you like guessing. Um, But I want you to see a little bit because 46 to 50 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so Genesis contains a prediction that is then fulfilled in Genesis. And we have the bad habit of seeing everything in the past and losing the miracle that that was. When God spoke to Abram, Genesis 15, he, had, he didn't even see this happening, but God foretold it. And it's, it's important to see the miracles. I'm going to talk about Jacob's prophecy There's a host of people that deny that Jacob ever gave that because it foretells the future. And they say, that's not possible. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. And here's the reality. You remove the miracle from the Bible and you've lost the resurrection. You've lost the incarnation. You've lost everything. I know this can be taboo because I know Jefferson has done good, but Thomas Jefferson was an unsaved man. He does not reside in heaven right now. He rewrote the Bible. Guess what he removed? All the miracles. You got no salvation. You got morality, which is what he wanted. He thought the stories were great, but he did not believe in Christ. He did not believe in the true God. He believed in a God of his own making, just like a lot of people do. But he was a lost person. Why? He removed the miracles. We can always hope that towards the end of his life, he would have repented from that. There's no indication that he did. And so I want us to, to recognize the prophecy and we get to see if we're told. So I'm going to read it, Genesis 15, 13 through 14. And it says this, And he, and that's speaking of God, said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Egypt is not their land. And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them, 400 years 
And also that nation, when they shall serve, will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. What kind of judgment does God put on Egypt? There's plagues, aren't there? And then what happens at the Red Sea? Who drowns? Armies crushed. So they're punished for this. They pay for it. I won't teach it ahead of time. That's for next year. But I just want you to see this happening. Well, that prophecy is now unfolding. We're not going to see its fruition, but its inception is here because what we're seeing is Jacob packs up and moves on to Egypt. And we're going to walk through this story all the way to the death of Joseph. We're going to move through a lot of years. There's a, there's a lot that happens, and then suddenly you're jumping 17 years, and then the next thing you know, you're jumping 50 years, and then Joseph's saying, bury me in Canaan, which I want to close with that because I'm still fascinated by Joseph wanting to be in Canaan, and I want you to see something about Joseph that we talked about last week is Joseph saw things from God's perspective, and that request to be buried in Canaan is seeing things from God's perspective. I want to remind you of this. All of his eliteness happened in Egypt. It's like a pro football player plays for one city all their career, right? I'm going to use an illustration. It may fall flat. Joe Montana, who did he play for? 49ers, 49ers, because that's where all his glory is. He's retired out of the what? Well, officially out of 49ers, but the Chiefs, right? He played, but we don't think of that, right? We think of where all of his life happened, and those guys often want to retire out of the city that where most of their glory happened. If you take that into Joseph's life, you can multiply it by a thousandfold because he's the grand vizier. He's in charge of Egypt through his lifetime, and he retires at some point. But you would expect a guy like that to say, yeah, bury me in Egypt, let someone else go back. Why, why shouldn't Benjamin get buried in uh, Canaan? Why shouldn't Judah? Why shouldn't someone else? Who wants to get buried in Egypt, uh, not in Egypt, in Canaan? Joseph. Why? God's perspective. How? All of his life is Egypt. Everything. Looks like an Egyptian, dressed like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian. He wants to go to Canaan because that's where God sends the Israelites. And guess who he still identifies as? God's people. Even through all of that, he's never lost sight of who he is. God's people. And I think it's fascinating. We're going to get to that, sorry, ahead of time. But I want you to land there. That's the main point. Uh, What we're going to begin with is, in these closing chapters, we're going to begin with what I call a departure and arrival. This is 46. I'm going to do what I did last week. We're moving through a lot of Scripture. I want to encourage you to go back and read it through. I'll read certain verses to help us move through it and tell the story in between. But you want to go back and read it through. Uh, It's fascinating if you can, it's a big read, I know, but if you had time to sit by the fire or whatever fake fire you may have and go there and read through all of Genesis in a sitting, it's it's pretty amazing. And and honestly, it's a a 50-page book. You've read a 50-page book before, all right? You can do this. It's possible. You get the whole picture. Uh, The one that resonates with me, I did this with Joshua one time. We were teaching through Joshua. I was on a family vacation and I never sleep well on family vacations, and so I can sit there frustrated until it's time to get up, or I smell someone cooking breakfast, or I got, I got up at four o'clock one morning and read all through Joshua, and it's fascinating when you read it in a, in a one lump sum. If you do the same thing with Genesis, it just puts it all in perspective. So I just want to encourage you, if you have a chance, do that. 
No more side trails now. Going on, departure and arrival. Chapter 45 closes with something interesting. Jacob says this, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive, and I will go and see him before I die. And what, what you see in that verse is a confident man. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go see Joseph, which makes sense because Jacob typically makes a decision and just goes forward. 46 actually gives us a lot of interesting perspective that's easy to miss because at the beginning of chapter 46, you'll notice he packs up and goes to Beersheba and there offered sacrifices and, and had the move to Egypt affirmed by God. And we can quickly miss what he's doing, but this is not him going to Beersheba and just doing a cursory, well, I better sacrifice to God before I head out of here. It was a man who believes he's moving in the right direction, but stops and seeks God's, not approval of what he's doing, but God's will in this. And, and it's really fascinating. Um, I put here, Jacob doesn't leave Canaan based on his own decision. Instead, he leaves with God's reassurance. I'm going to read 46, 1 through 4. Just kind of hear it there. So 45, 28, I'm going to go see Joseph. Then Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Bathsheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. That's not indicating that he doesn't believe in God. It's just showing the lineage, the connection. That's the point of that verse. You'll see that often. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. In other words, I'm available to you. I'm here. I'm listening. And he said, I am God the God of thy father, fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Now, question for you, who here has little kids that are fearful at times? What do you tell them? Don't be afraid. I have one of my kids right now just struggling with certain fears. And so, um, my, she, you're going to know who it is. It's going to be Avery. Um, it's Avery. Here you go. She's having some fears, so she'll come at night with some questions and some concerns. And we give her the assurance that it's going to be okay in the best 2 a.m. dad voice that I can pull <laughs> off, right? I have a question for you. How many of you think that I go wake her up at 2 a.m. and say, don't be afraid? <laughs> no one's that crazy, right? That's not a, if you're a parent that wakes your kids up to say that, you need to go back to parenting 101, all right? <laughs> With the whole let a sleeping dog lie really should be let a sleeping baby lie. Never mess with them, right? I say that because God's not going to tell Jacob to not be afraid if Jacob wasn't what? Afraid. Because where is he leaving? Everything he has, but what, what location is he leaving? The promised land. He spent 20 years away from the promised land. He knows what that's like being where you don't belong. There's a whole lineage from Abraham all the way to Joseph. You're going to see these guys not wanting to leave this land. And I want you to realize that he's told he doesn't need to fear because he does fear. And he says, I'll make you a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt. Is that not interesting? God says, I'm going to be with you. You're not walking out of my will here at all. And I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes, which means when you die... Joseph is going to close your eyes, which means he's not bringing Jacob back alive to Canaan. He's not making false promises. He says, Joseph is going to close your eyes when you die, 
but I'm bringing your nation, your people back again. But I want you to see something here, and I've missed it for years, is you're sitting in these four verses, and what you're watching is Jacob not impetuously moving forward, like it sounds like in 4528, here's a man who's thinking he's doing what God wants, but he finds affirmation. He stops and seeks God's will and gets affirmed. You think, well, of course he needed God's affirmation. Who did he want to see? Who was his favorite son? Not saying that favoritism was right, but who was his favorite son? Who hasn't he seen all these years? He has a driving desire as a dad to go see Joseph, right? He knows Joseph can't leave Egypt. When you run Egypt, they don't let you off the reservation typically, right? They keep you, keep you there. And so here sits Jacob, and you see a change in this man, right? From I'll do whatever I want, manipulate to get what I weigh, to a guy that's going to stop and, and seek God. Well, they journey on into the land, all of Jacob's descendants, not counting his son's wives. You think, wow, what a, what a terrible way to go. But they're all counting who descended from Jacob, blood-wise. And so they have their count. Everyone's there. They're listed and accounted for, giving us a clear picture of who came to Egypt. There's a lot of people say, oh, some people stayed back. Not all of Jacob's descendants came in there. And they're trying to split out God's chosen people. If all of them come into Egypt 400 years later, it means that all of them are leaving. There's no break. And so the scripture makes that clear. And then what you're going to find in 46 is Judah is going to break away, go to Joseph and say, dad's here. And then Joseph's going to meet him. And, and don't miss that, is that you're starting to see Judah take the leadership role. Just like Reuben promised he'd kill his kids if he didn't bring back Benjamin. Jacob does not go with the decision. But when Judah says, I'm vouching for this, then suddenly the situation was possible for Benjamin to leave. And that's God working and what we know is a horrible person, right? Judah's not, you're like, hey, that's the greatest guy ever, Ward. But you're seeing him step forward. And then Joseph reunites with his father in the land of Goshen, which is where, by the way, Joseph wanted his family to go. And I, I put this, they leave under God's reassurance and they arrive following Joseph's purpose. They go to Goshen because Joseph wants them there. We're going to end on something, and I just want to say this so you don't think I'm going in the wrong direction. Joseph's purpose was God's purpose, but I want you to see how his life aligned with what God would want. Pharaoh had still to finalize this decision. He said you can bring your family anywhere, but he hasn't said you can go here and I give this to you. So Jacob, you're going to, actually, you're going to watch Joseph orchestrating that his brothers answer questions a certain way. If Pharaoh asks you what to do, you tell him you're a shepherd. Why? Because it's an abomination. They don't want to be around him. They don't want to be around animal keepers. Goshen is a land that is a bit separated. Now, what is God's people called to be? Separated. Goshen is the easiest exit point back to Canaan, which will be 400 years before they do that, but it's the closest exit point back out, or the easiest one out. And so when you look at all the benefits of Goshen, good land, separated, and your shepherds, you're trying to build a buffer because Joseph doesn't want to see 
God's chosen people suddenly grabbing all the culture of Egypt and intermingling. And what you're going to find is that, and I mentioned at the beginning, Joseph's purpose was God's purpose. Why does Joseph want him in Goshen? Because God's people need to be separate. He's putting a hedge around them. He wants them to be ready to go back to Canaan. And obviously he wants good land so their crops can grow. I want you always to see how he's responding to situations. I put here as a question, is the same thing able to be said of us? Is our purpose God's purpose? Jacob, let's compare him. Do we seek God's will and permission even though the choice involved a reunion with the beloved son? Jacob sought God's will even though he wanted to see Joseph. He didn't commit to that completely until he knew that was God's will. I put here, seeking God's direction without prearranging the answer. Wasn't that typically Jacob? What did he do when he slept on that rock at Bethel? If, if you do this for me, and if you do that for me, and if you bring me back here in health, if you give me this, then I will serve you. Well, God, I know you want me to go to Egypt, so if you can just make the sky blue, I'm there. Oh, it's blue. Got it, right? That wasn't his manipulation. He's seeking him. And then I want you to see Joseph's life. He is the greatest person besides Pharaoh in Egypt. He could have brought his family into the city. He could have made them rule over districts. He could have done anything he wanted and elevated his power and control. What did he want them to be? Separate. Because he doesn't have to make them shepherds. Give them a razor, have them shave. They can look just like him, remember? He came out of prison, and what's the first thing he had to do? Clean up and shave. But he didn't do that. Why? He's not trying to make Israel into Egyptians he recognized that this was not where they're supposed to stay. How would he know that? Who was told they wouldn't stay in that land? Abram. And Abram probably told Isaac. And Isaac probably told Jacob. And Jacob probably told Joseph. Because they're not looking at this, right? This is their story written by Moses, used by the Holy Spirit through Moses. That's later. But he would have known it because of what was told him. And you see him recognizing, he's not, man, Egypt's a great place. What's the difference between Egypt and Canaan, landscape-wise? Not much, right? There's water, there's land, you can grow stuff. I mean, I know there's differences, but he could easily say, hey, I'm powerful here, guys. Let's just, let's just build ourselves an entity here. No, he's not, he's not into that. Now, the brothers get presented to Pharaoh and they answer the question as Joseph instructed them. And we find they are, and I put here, given and giving. This is chapter 47. First, they're, they're given land by Pharaoh. Goshen is now theirs. By the way, before the chapter ends, all the land in Egypt belongs to Pharaoh. It didn't beforehand. All right. Depending on where you land on the Exodus, and, and I'm going to spend a little time journeying through this, but the history of Egypt is fascinating because 
there is a point in history, and I'm not saying this is the exact one. One commentator I read did see it this way, time-wise. There is a king where you can read where the control of property went from nobles to royal officials. What's the difference? Sounds similar, right? But nobles are pharaohs, royal officials. When did that happen in their history? Right there, because it gets turned over and they're in this famine, they sign away the everything and now Pharaoh owns everything. And so there was a massive shift in control that took place where you see a massive change from Egyptians owning land to Pharaoh owning every land and it's government controlled now. Um, so he gives him Goshen or Goshen and then later Joseph brings in Jacob, his father. <coughs> we don't know how far apart this was. Was this immediate? Uh, the indications it may be a little bit later. And here's fascinating. Here's an old shepherd coming in. Old clothes, different style. I'm not saying he's looking like he's gotten royal linens on or anything else. What do you think Pharaoh was dressed in? Everything. This is the head of the world at the moment. Who typically blesses who? The greater blesses the lesser, right? That's the norm. If you went up to the Queen of England and gave her a blessing, she'd be like, who are you? Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't care. They're, they'll give you... She knights somebody else. A knight doesn't go tell her and give her honor. But what we're going to find is there's a blessing by Jacob. He blesses. An old shepherd from Canaan meets the ruling power of his day, and he is the one giving the blessing, which, by the way, is the right order. Do you know the name of the Pharaoh that Jacob talked to? Anyone? It's not even agreed upon. I have one book, and I think there's 25 options. Wherever you place it, that must have been a king. Whose name do you know? You know Jacob's. Jacob's name's known around the where? world. Even Muslims know Jacob's name. Even people who don't believe in God know Jacob. And what you get to see is a picture of the right order, even though at that time it would have never felt like the right order. The Pharaoh should bless Jacob. Not Jacob the Pharaoh. He's the Pharaoh. But Jacob's the one who gives blessing there. Uh, Jacob lived 17 years in Egypt, by the way. And, and he's starting to tell his time is coming to a close. It's near. So he calls Joseph to him and has Joseph promise to bury him in Canaan. Look at 47, 29 through 31. I'm fine here. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. When have you heard the whole hand under a thigh thing before? Abram, right? And who, do, who promised him then? His servant. To not bring Isaac back. So Jacob is using a form of promise that we've seen before, generational here. He says, but I will lie with my fathers and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, swear unto me. And he swore unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. In other words, you're seeing Joseph, I mean, Jacob is, is fading. Now, before he passes away, though, we're going to find, I put blessings upon blessings. This is chapter 48 and 49. Uh, things went from close to death to being at death's door, 
And then the next move we find as we wander into 48 is that Joseph comes to visit with his two sons. I'm going to look at Genesis 48, 1 through 2. And it came to pass after these things, which all that is telling you is after Joseph promised he would bring Jacob and bury him in Canaan. We don't know when that was. It's highly unlikely that it's years later. It's not. It's, it could be days. It could be weeks. Maybe it was very soon thereafter. Maybe Joseph's sons were, were waiting out there. This could all be close proximity. But that proximity could be spread by days, months, days or weeks, not likely months, and it could be connected. After that, what he did, that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. In other words, he's bedridden. He has to put all of his energy to present himself, to sit up, not even stand. What we're going to find before any of the brothers receive a blessing, we find the blessing for Joseph's kids. And this is an interesting blessing, and, and it might sound weird to us. They're counted as Jacob's kids officially. Thus the tribe of what? Manasseh and Ephraim. We hear about them. You're going to hear about them in Exodus. Who are the 12 tribes? This is a great, great discussion. If you make Manasseh and Ephraim tribes, you've got 13, right? Joseph, but Manasseh and Ephraim are added to this, and they are now counted as Jacob's children. That doesn't resonate the same way as it does with them. So it is, in perspective, moving up an echelon. So now they are equals with their uncles. In a patriarchal society, you're never equal with your uncles. You're never equal with your dad. You're never equal with your grandfather. You're never moving up a generation and having that status. That means Ephraim and Manasseh had cousins that were older than them, and they suddenly just went, and they are counted above them. And again, our society misses the significance in the Western world uh, today, but they, they literally are moving up the hierarchy of this. It is a big deal to have yourself counted as one of the sons of your grandfather. By the way, Joseph does that with Manasseh's kid, I think, and you wonder a little bit if he's trying to redeem the fact that Jacob's going to switch hands on him here a little bit. So they come up, and Jacob, and look, Joseph's no dummy, so he places them where, where Ephraim, not Ephraim, Manasseh would have been under the right hand and Ephraim the left. And what does Jacob do? He swaps it. Is that a natural move? I'm not feeling well. Let me see if I can make this harder, right? He switches it. Jake, Joseph is not happy about this. He, he says, wait a second, Dad, you're blowing it. Nope, I'm making a prediction. Now, what's fascinating is that he says that Ephraim is going to be or surpass Manassas, but he doesn't say Manassas is going to crumble to nothing. He actually says he's going to be a big tribe as well, but that Ephraim would just be bigger. Does that not fit the whole storyline that we've gone through? Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and now Judah over three other brothers, ultimately. God has never played by the, the rules that are there, so to speak. Man's rules have not been followed by God. Joseph, at the end of 47 or 48, is given a bonus tract of land near Shechem. Do you remember when Jacob was near Shechem? What did he do at one point? 
He bought land. And, and Jacob says to Joseph, I'm giving you land. It's not for your brothers. It's for you. It's specific for you to take. At that point in time, what land did Jacob own? That one piece of land. He didn't own anything else in Canaan. He owned nothing in Egypt. He owned a track of land at Shechem. And who did he give it to? Joseph. This is where you see Joseph elevated in that way. Well, after that, Jacob calls together all of his sons. Jump with me to 49. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourself together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. That's a fun call in, right? Hey, I want to say goodbye to you. Hey, I want to tell you what's going to happen. What's going to happen to you? I'm going to tell you right now. Gather yourself together and hear ye, sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. In other words, get over here and get ready to listen. I'm going to work through all the kids. I'm not going to read all the passages. What you're going to see, most Bibles break it down by name. You're going to work your way all the way through it. And I'll land at the death. Joseph and brothers, we start with Reuben. This is his firstborn. What does Jacob say about him that's important? You're unstable. Unstable as water. Why? Because he was immoral with Bilhah. And that's how Jacob addresses it. How many years has that been? He didn't forget. It's been a long time. 50 years. Now he's paying for that problem. Simeon and Levi are lumped together, the next two in age order. They're reprimanded for their anger and cruelty with Shechem. By the way, they never really have their own space in the promised land. Simeon gets sucked into the tribe of Judah, dispersed. And what happens to Levi? They're priests, and they never really end up having their Levi territory. They're used by God in a mighty way, chosen for that. And by the way, Moses was from the tribe of Levi. And so you're going to watch that. Then comes Judah with the first three disqualified. He is the acting firstborn and promised victory and the kingship. It would be through his lineage that Christ would come and predictions of Christ are woven into the framework of his blessing from Jacob. I could spend a long time breaking all of that out. You're seeing millennial kingdom promises. You're seeing a promise of a Messiah. It's woven into the fabric. Jacob is foretelling the future miraculously, supernaturally, not of his own power. But Judah is now singled out as our head, our king. This is where the ruler will come. Zebulun is the only one assigned a geographical location. Uh, it says by the sea. They never live by the sea, but they're on the trade route. Everything that came from the sea would pass through Zebulun, and they would be enriched by the passage of that equipment through there. Issachar, they're promised to be diligent farmers. This is your ag department for Israel. Agriculture, where are you in agriculture? You are a son of Issachar because that is their promise to be farmers there. Dan, they would judge. But it's an interesting thing. They say you're like a serpent in the road. And, and, and a lot of commentators see that as a depiction of their lack of moral commitment. Dan is very immoral, ultimately. Gad, they lived in the Transjordan region and they're often attacked. And that's a fun promise. You're going to be attacked a lot. But he says, you're going to attack back and you're going to make them pay, basically. And they are. They sit exposed in that one region and they, they go back and forth raiding. Naphtali, as a deer freed, many see this as an indication of their warriors who fought with Barak and were successful against Sisera. They supply a 
huge chunk of those guys and judges fighting and overcoming one of their oppressors. Joseph, along with Judah, he is abundantly blessed. A, what does he call them? Well, that makes perfect sense, right? Because out of Joseph came what? Ephraim and Manassas. And they basically replaced Joseph as two. He's very fruitful. Some of the largest tribes were Ephraim and Manassas. Um, Jacob talks about his life. You're an overcomer. You're unique in this family. He was unique. He goes on and he exemplifies trust and commitment to God. That's who Joseph is. You, you watch what Jacob says and you're seeing his life in review. Most of these guys are all future looking. But Joseph, you get a little bit of, I call rewind. And, and Jacob's saying, you've, you've lived your life like God wants. You are an example that we need to follow. And then you get Benjamin. He's described as a wolf. And the implication is that he's aggressive and has warlike characteristics. And the, and the people of Benjamin were warlike. They could sling. It was usually those guys with their left hand that could sling the stone at a hair and, and not miss it. So there's a sense of their warlike nature. Jacob covers all of his kids and everything heard and seen was a prophetic picture. Those who doubt the supernatural deny he could have given these blessings, but to deny that is to deny the whole biblical faith. You listen to somebody, and I mention this right now because you're going to see it at different points. We're going to see it in Scripture. Someone denies the miraculous in Scripture, and they are unredeemed. You cannot negate the miracles of, of, of God's Word and still worship Christ. Impossible. Why? Everything about his existence is not what? Natural. He's born of a virgin. Is that normal? No. Being 100% God, 100% man, is that normal? No. Dying on the cross, a lot of people did that. Rising from the grave three, years, three days later, very abnormal. Redeeming all of humanity in the sense of paying for sins, very abnormal, right? Not natural. Thus what? Supernatural. What I find fascinating is we live in a world of skeptics. But how many Marvel movies are there? And how many adults? Now look, interesting movies, right? But how many adults you think almost believe it? Like you're like, you believe it, don't you? you you've never, you know Spider-Man's not real. He can't do that. That's, that's actually fake. You were supposed to grow up at some point and say, hey, yeah, well, I'm, I'm so excited, I'm throwing my microphone around. That's the one I watch with Spider-Man. Um, but you see, we have such a supernatural fascination, and yet how skeptical is our society about Jesus Christ? So what is that? And again, don't, don't take this too far. Don't be like, oh, well, better burn my Spider-Man pajamas, you know. I know Eric's all disappointed over there, <laughs> you know. Something you can get them for, for Christmas, you know, a new pair. Um, funny enough, my mom bought uh, Clayton Spider-Man pants, and Clay fears nothing except spiders. And so Heather pulled out the pants, and he's like, it's like Satan charms, you know. It's like, I don't worship the devil, Mom. And, you know, so we had to give them back to Oma, and Oma got him a uh, Paw Patrol. He can handle talking puppies. But uh, he cannot handle spiders. So... 
I get it, but I'm saying I was a Spider-Man fanatic, but I, I hate spiders too. It's the worst. Um, but either way, we live in a society, right, enamored with the supernatural. So don't take it too far, but we know they're supernatural. Thus, we're enamored with it in a fictitious way, but not in the way that's real. Why? There you go. You don't have to obey Spider-Man. He's not your God. He's just a cool dude that has some powers that are not normal. But you talked about God being miraculous, and suddenly you have to submit to that God because he has authority, and he has the power, and he can say that there's only salvation in Christ. What do people say? Well, look how exclusive you are. Heather was sharing, there's a friend, friend of ours, and she's a teacher, long-time long teacher, and she's like, it's interesting because people know she's a Christian, and so there's a teacher at her school that came up to her and said, I heard you think that if people don't believe the way they, you believe, they're going to hell. And she says, well, I believe the Bible, and the Bible says... <laughs> That if you don't believe in the truth, that you're not saved, then yes, you are. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, he's not being, he's coming with a battle, but do you realize that people get confronted with this idea that God has the right to say what he says, and they're blown away by that because they like their supernatural to be controllable? And that's why it's weird. We reject it, but we're enamored with it. But you reject it, you've lost everything. That's a little side note, a little bonus. Um, going on, the stage is now set, and what we see is the plan of God unfolding. And I want you to see this. From Genesis' perspective, we're watching, they're looking forward to something that's going to happen. We sit over here, and we're like, oh, it's all history. But as he's predicting what's going to take place, we're seeing God unfold his plan that he's laid out. And so what we're seeing is it's coming to bear as he planned it. And so the first book of the Bible, the beginnings, is drawing now to a close. And the, and the chapter of the story is ending, uh, but not before we see, and this is how we close out in chapter 50, deaths and burials. How do you close out a story? Well, bury them, right? It's over. Chapter 50. Let me give a little background. 49.33, when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons... I do enjoy that. Like, he wasn't hugging them. You know, it's like, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. I'm done. I'm out. There we go. That was my chance to tell you guys one more time what you're going to do. And then he curls up, basically, gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. He knew he was dying. Again, who here knows it? And you know people who, yeah, people know have an indication that death's at the door, but he knew it was exactly at the door. That's also supernatural. And so he's done doing the prophecy God had told him to do, and then he passes away, and then we wander into 50. And I want you to realize this. Chapter 51 through 14 is a promise fulfilled. There's a burial in Canaan. Joseph has Jacob embalmed and mourned for him 70 days. That's a long time, right? Have you done the math of how much time that is? It's a fifth of the year, roughly. You know how long they mourned for a pharaoh? 72 days. So you can't take, Jacob couldn't have mourning that took him past pharaoh, but he's as close to the mourning for pharaoh as you can get, 70 days. Joseph requests time off to bury 
Jacob. And you see him making the request to somebody else, not because he can't go into Pharaoh's presence, he can't go to Pharaoh's presence in mourning. And so he sends someone in. Joseph goes, and you find that Pharaoh sends an entourage from Egypt, and he fulfills the promise. Now, why do you think Pharaoh sends an entourage to Egypt, of, from Egypt with Joseph to bury his dad? Multiple reasons, but make sure he comes back. That's my first thought. Oh, yeah. How do you make sure Joseph comes back? Make sure you send plenty of people to bring him. Now, it was an honor thing, but don't miss this idea. What does that tell you about Joseph? Where's his heart? Canaan. Right? None of you, I'm going to send none of you um, to Nicaragua and say, you're never coming back. I know you're coming back, right? At some point, you want to come back to America. But because this is where you belong, this is where your heart is. But the reason they have to worry about Joseph coming back, not because he's being deceitful, but because Joseph's heart was there. Now, after that, and I'm going to read 50.12, it says here, And his sons did unto him according as he commanded them. They had, he had, they had instructions and they executed them, which I wish more people would do, right? It'd be nice, all dads say that, right? If we just do what you tell us, it'd be fine. Yeah. I'm sitting here as a dad saying, I want my kids to do what I say, and there's my dad saying, I wish he'd do what I said, you know? But look at Jacob, you know, ancient, his sons are old. I mean, they're as old as some of our old ones here, you know? And, and they're there, and they're doing what their dad told them, executing it. Then the brothers get worried. Ooh, dad's gone. I wonder what Joseph's going to do. Go look at 50, 19 through 20. They come to, they send people to him and say, dad said this. And it's hard to imagine that their dad would said this, but then they follow right behind it. And they're basically begging him, worried that he's going to take vengeance. Um, Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? That's an important verse. We live in a day and age where we step into God's place way too often. None of us have as much power as Joseph had. Of anyone in the world at that time, Joseph could have played God. If he wanted to, Egypt would have worshipped him. Happily. They worshipped their Pharaoh. Why wouldn't they worship this guy that saved him from a famine? He says, I'm not God, and I'm not going to play God. Then he tells it, but as for you, ye thought evil against me. There's no excusing. This goes all the way back to what they said before. You had evil, and this is the verse we typically read and memorize, but remember all the way back last week, he said it first to him. God had a plan to save many lives. He's repeating it here. Now he's very descriptive. You meant it for evil. I have no doubts about your motives, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. The brothers are worried, and Joseph, uh, Joseph says again, he points to God. I'm not God, and God was in control. You guys were horrible. We know that. We got that established. You meant it as evil. He doesn't excuse sin at all. But here is a man that's still seeing things from God's perspective. Number one, I'm not God. Number two, God did what he needed to do. That he used your sin. He didn't need your sin to do this, but that it was worked out for the good. He sees that. That's a tough perspective to have. 
You don't get over prison. You don't get over all the slavery. That's not something that's just like, well, no big deal. Don't worry. A tough 13 years, but now I'm the head of everything. It, it, it's a tough move. And then we get a final close. Remember I said how we were going to jump. We jumped forward 17 years and Jacob died. And now we're at this conversation at his burial. And by the way, they mourned from another seven days out in the wilderness. I don't know if Jacob was just making sure they did over Pharaoh's time. Like, well, you want 72? We'll do 77. You know, he added seven more. So we jump forward. We, we get Jacob into Egypt and then jump forward 17 years. By the way, you always have the picture in your mind of Ephraim and Manasseh. And what do we typically do? Like he's putting on the head of two young boys. They were 20 and 21 or 22. They couldn't stand between his knees. That was an idea of, of depicting that they came from him. It was a movement on his part to get him there. Now they'd be bowed down, but these were adult men at that time. Now we're coming 50 years. We jump forward now. So we finished 29. It says, And now therefore, 21, fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And then boom, 22, 50 years forward. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knee. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What is he thinking of at 110? Promised land. God's perspective. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. And what do we all think of? Oh, he's talking to Judah. Judah was older than Joseph. I doubt Judah's alive right now. I doubt any of his brothers are. Maybe Benjamin is. But here's a 110-year-old man. He's not talking to his brothers. He's talking to the kids that have been born to them. This is, if he's seen Ephraim to the third generation, he's talking to all of those kids, grandkids and great-grandkids, and says, God is going to visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. In other words, you're going to take me with you when you go. And then 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But he wasn't buried, because he's leaving. I want you to see something here. He made them promise to bury him in Canaan, and he basically lived his whole life in Egypt as an Egyptian in a sense of government and control and rule. And I put down here, um, he wanted to be buried where God intended Israel to be. Who has Joseph always identified with? And I know that's a favorite phrase, so let's not dive into that cesspool, but let's just look at where he identified with. God's chosen people. And ultimately, that means he identified with Israel and God. God was, he never lost sight of who is in charge and who rules and who reigns. And it never was Pharaoh for Joseph. The ruling powers were not, not that he was a belligerent, obnoxious person. He's obviously second in command through the land. But that was never the person who ruled. God ruled. And the only way you are consumed with being buried in Canaan, you know what he, what he bypassed in Egypt? His own pyramid, his own burial, his own legacy, people trumpeting, making this the biggest deal ever and being on a monument in the land. He bypassed all of that glory to what? 
Not that he'd be dead, but he, his kids could glory in it, right? All of that to do what? To be buried in Canaan. In a culture that exemplified this, sending people off to the afterlife, riches and everything else, here's a man, do you get buried with a lot of stuff in your coffin? There's only so much stuff that fits in the coffin. And 400 years to get there. But what was more important to him? His legacy and the trumpets blaring about him? Why is it easy for an Egyptian pharaoh to later on forget about what Joseph did? There was no monument to Joseph. Also, they were very forgetful. That's the other, you know. Some dynasty takes over another dynasty and they don't care less what happened 100 years ago. But don't miss the fact that there was no, there's a recollection, there's a history, but there's no monument to him. There's no, why? Because he chose to be where God wanted God's people to be. And I put Joseph ends his life as he lived it with God's perspective. His life was centered on fulfilling God's will and through every twist and turn, he maintained that focus. If you want to take away something from Joseph, and he's a, uh, there's a lot to take away, focused on God's will no matter what your circumstances are. Whether they be awful, dungeon, betrayed by your brothers, think you're going to die, or richest, most powerful personality in the biggest land in the country, controlling, look, when you're handing corn out to people and there is no corn anywhere, you literally hold their life in your hands. He could take it away. He could give it. That's a lot of power. What do they say about power? Corrupts. Do you see corruption in Joseph? His focus. He never lost sight of who is in charge, who has the authority, who has the power. That's the biggest takeaway from his life. Don't lose sight of who is in charge. And I, I look at it this way. Don't lose sight of who is God and who is not God. Isn't that a good reminder? As Americans, what sometimes happens to us, it, we're successful. And look, as a world, we're extremely successful. And, and, and we can get in our mind this idea that we're many gods. That's, that's what people want to be. That is that, you know, why, why, do, why do people not want to repent? The idea of repenting is changing your mind. Who are you changing your mind about? You. Yes. When you believe you change your mind, so to speak, about God, when you repent, you see yourself as God sees you. Most people don't believe their sin because that makes them culpable. There's no sin. I'm not a sinner. And that's the pressure that comes in, what did Joseph see himself as? Exactly as he should. And he even tells his brother, I'm not God, I'm not going to play God. God worked his plan. Does God always work his plan? Thankfully, yes, right? What was God's plan from Genesis 3.15? Let's trace it through a little bit. First indication of a redeemer. And what happens in the Gospels? We find a redeemer. God finishes his plan. And Joseph, knowing he's part of God's plan, that's where he rested in. Now, I'm going to do a brief review. I actually have no time for a review, but I'm going to do it very, very fast. Genesis 1 through 11, history of humanity. 
Fascinating, 11 chapters, critical. You got creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion. And that's not my titles, answers in Genesis came up with those many moons ago. So a long time ago, but they help paint the picture. That's very critical chapters. All chapters are critical, but we have creation. We see from nothing. We see created everything. We see sin. We see the flood. And then we see confusion. And through that all, you see God's mercy, God's mercy, God's grace, Mercy and grace is repeated through Genesis 1 through 11. The flood is merciful. The confusion is merciful. And we see a perfect environment tainted by sin. We see a purified environment. That's after the flood, tainted by sin. Then the focus goes from all of humanity down to one family. Genesis 12 through 50. And you work through it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And we just had Joseph dying at the end of Genesis. What happens is you flip the page, if you can, if your finger can work like that, and you turn to Exodus, and then the next thing you know, you're 400 years further down the line. We get a little back history here. We, we learn something that they've forgotten who Joseph was and everything else, and bam, we're in the enslavement portion, and the promise to Abraham is about to unfold. The leaving of that land where you were going to go and be enslaved in. And that's Exodus. We're watching them leave. And that's what we call it rescued and redeemed. They are rescued out and the God's people are pulled all the way out. And we're going to walk in the desert for a while after that, you know, so we're working through. Fastening enough, Exodus, if you were doing a, a chronological, you would go to Exodus and then to Numbers. Leviticus takes place in one month. It's all law. It's all information. You have Exodus, Leviticus one month, and then you go through the rest is Numbers. There's a lot of time. And then Deuteronomy is like your recap, putting it all together. Uh, fascinating. So we're going to be in Exodus starting next year, January 12th.